Five scores! Rick Vaughn. We've decided to get ourselves back in the game again with our podcast. Rick Vaughn, Gary Madden. Probably the craziest story that you're ever going to hear about hockey. We're going to be coming back to you on a regular basis. You are listening to Squid and the Ultimate Leafs fan. Hello, Canada and hockey fans of the United States and Newfoundland. And an extra big hello to Canadian servicemen overseas. Welcome, everyone, to episode 99 of the Squid and Ultimate Leaf Fan Show. I'm Mike Wilson, the Ultimate Leaf Fan. Joining me as always, my winger, Ricky Squid Vibe. Squid, how are we keeping? Keeping okay, Mike. Keeping okay. Went, uh, saw the doc today. I'm switching doctors, and I was going to go for blood, but then I realized I had coffee this morning, so I couldn't go get blood, so I have to go tomorrow. So. <laughs> Well, that's not usually a smart thing to do. So maybe you'll pay attention and follow the directions of the good doctor. I, I will. <laughs> well, it's a good thing our, our guest today followed instructions, or he probably led your instructions for you moving forward because this is somebody you're very familiar with. Uh, he was taken 11th overall by the Toronto Maple Leafs in the 1977 amateur draft, played 12 years in National Hockey because stops in Quebec and Hartford. Distinguished himself behind the bench as a coach at every minor level, basically. And in the NHL with uh, Atlanta, spent most of the majority of his coaching career with the Chicago Wolves. Uh, they retired his banner in the, in the ceiling there. He's along with our good friend Billy Gardner, who's there for all those years. And uh, lots of people like him in that city. A true hockey lifer. Please welcome John Anderson. John, first off, thanks for joining us. And how's it going? Uh, just awesome. I'm uh Currently retired and uh, enjoying life to the fullest. <laughs> well, <laughs> what? Uh, so, are you keeping busy at all these days? You playing golf like Squid every day? No, he, he only plays on days that end in Y. That's if I'm correct with that. But uh, for me, um, you know, I've got uh, a few health issues right now with uh, kind of like a second like arthritis through my whole body. So, uh, I've only played. Uh, actually, I played yesterday for the first time in almost a year. And uh, it didn't turn out well. <laughs> I lo- a lot of worms lost their heads, believe me. Um, but, uh, you know, I enjoy golf. I love that. I, I, you know, I, I belong to three or four different clubs in Toronto. And, uh, but uh, you know what? You can only do what the body will let you do, right? Yeah, that's great. Yeah, the body uh, is getting, it's getting tougher and tougher, Andy, uh, obviously. And, uh, I mean, I... I play every day almost, as you said, every day that ends in Y, except for Sunday. I usually take one day a week off. But it gets more difficult because the body just doesn't want to do what you want it to do. <laughs> and that that is tough. That is tough. Well, uh, Gene Ubriaco, a good friend of mine, said the, the hardest thing about getting old is getting old. <laughs> and it's very difficult, uh, you know, when, you're, when your mind and um, – you know, your ability to maybe swing at, at the ball properly and you know what you're supposed to do physically, uh, but your body goes, uh-uh, you're not doing that anymore. And so now you got to change your swing around and, uh, you know, the whole nine yards. It's, uh, you know, when, and, you know, one of the telltale things, and I'm sure you've gone through this, uh, Squid, is that when your kids, the first time they hit the ball farther than you, then now you're jumping out of your shoes at it all the time. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, it's a, it's a transition as you get, get older, but uh, certainly it, it beats the alternative of not getting older. Yeah, well, my, I think my, my youngest guy hit, hit it 
about 50 yards further than me when he was 14 years old. So <laughs> that, that was the start of it. And at six, well, he's six, only 19 tall. I can't understand that. <laughs> yeah, 640, 6'6", 245. He only, he only hits at about 320, 330. That's with the putter. That's, yeah. <laughs> so, hey, now, uh, so, John, outside of that, are you just going to uh, – are you staying out of hockey now? You any thoughts of getting back into the game at some point? Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, last year I got a call from my agent and when um, uh, the Edmonton guys called up the guys from um, Bakersfield. Um, and so, uh, I talked to Keith Gretzky, who's the general manager down in Bakersfield and, uh, uh, Colin, uh, Colin Chalk, who, uh, you know, brought me on board for just four and a half months. And it was great. You know, uh, one of the things I loved about it was, um, getting to work with the young players again, getting on the ice with them. I, I really enjoy that, uh, part of the game, but, uh, you know, the, the intensity of all the video, uh, that you have to do and not have to do, but you should do if you want to have you give yourself a, a good chance of winning. Uh, it just got old for me. And I, I felt it really wasn't, I was coaching from video more than, uh, you know, being with the players and uh, hey, maybe that's the way it is now. And, and uh, you know, listen, remember when they took the center line out when we had to change our whole uh, schemes of four check and how to check in the neutral zone. So, uh, you know, coaching's ever evolving. And, and, you know, when you, when you stop learning and you stop evolving, then you do stop coaching. Yeah, it's funny. It's funny you mentioned that because I know there was a lot of times where I'd go to the, the Scotiabank Arena early and I'd go down below. And I if there was someone that I knew that I played with or played against that, you know, was coaching, I'd stop in and see him. And I'd walk in the room and there'd be six guys on computers. Like, and I'm all like, what the heck are these guys all doing? <laughs> Yeah, I think it's helped the game. Uh, no, I, I'm with you. There's no secrets, but again, I for me, uh, I really enjoyed, um, you know, dealing with the players as a person more. You know what I mean? Like, and it didn't have to be about hockey. You know, it could have been about something about their personal life that, that you know, that, that maybe I've gone through and, and stuff like that. You could always help them with. And um you know, I, I just miss that type of uh, interaction with the players. Well, Skid, you said yeah, you, you, you did the same thing. You I went agree. through yourself, great coaching. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if I could do it today with all the stuff that they go through and the video and all that. I think it would be a little tough unless I was the head coach. You know, but again, you still have to use video and everything, but I like the personal touch, Andy, like you said. I think there, I don't think there's anything better than sitting down with a player and just having a conversation about how you doing, how are things, and that sort of thing, and I think I think that's gone now. Um, I remember when I was uh, uh, seven years old, uh, it was my first um, like travel team, what they call travel team now, and it was the SHA, the Scarborough Hockey League, and I remember uh, once a week we would go down to uh, our coach's basement, all the team, the whole team, and we would have what they call chalk talks. I remember you know, those. You'd have a you'd have a board up and uh, some chalk and stuff like that. And the best thing was we got uh, coke and hot dogs too, so that was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> well, I remember that uh, when I, John, I go back that far too, and I remember my going for chalk talk on a Friday night. One night I couldn't go. My dad took me to this store. We're standing in this 
donut shop in Scarborough, right at uh, pharmacy or at uh, Warden and Lawrence in the Colony Plaza. And I'm sitting there sulking because I couldn't go to the Chalk Talk and get our hot chocolate and our treat. And I'm standing here in this bloody store for no reason. And all of a sudden, Tim Horton walks out. And it was his first oh. donut shop. It was called Royal Donut. And he was the sponsor of our team. Oh, awesome. <laughs> awesome. So that was my introduction right away to the old historical stuff of Toronto Maple Leafs. But I want to let's want I want to come back to we'll come back to the coaching shortly. But what I want to go is we'll talk about you growing up, John. And I'd have to say you're probably one of a handful of players or there's a there's a few of you donning the Maple Leaf uniform in the last 40 years or so who are basically almost cradled a grave. Bruce Boudreaux is another one I can think of. And there's a few others that. You know, played in the minor league, played the minor hockey, played American Waxers, played for the Marlboros, and ended up playing for the Leafs. So that mm-hmm. was really something, if you think about it, for a hometown kid to do that and make that accomplishment. I know you played for Wexford at one point, and that's where you probably were playing SHA, but that must have been quite something growing up playing minor hockey like that. Yeah, it was great. You know, my parents were great taking us around, plus my two brothers and my sister. And, you know, I mean, it was, you know, my parents had a lot to do with it. So, uh, you know, without them, uh, you know, I would not have made the National Hockey League, that, and that's for sure. Uh, but growing up with Wexford, I remember uh, when I turned um, <clears throat> minor Bantam, I played with Wexford my whole life. And you have to understand, too, like that team kind of moved up, you know, as you moved up in age groups. There was very, very few different uh, players that were added, and they just kind of grew up that way. So uh, the Marlies wanted me to come out. The minor Bantam Marlies wanted me to come out. And try out for them and i mean i you know i just come off like like 350 goal years i was like rick vive for pete's sakes uh in my <laughs> and um so you know they they wanted me to play with the marley's because you know they they were always you know one of the upper echelon teams and so i said to my dad i go dad i go i don't think i want to go there and he says well why is that and he goes i, I, I said because i'm gonna miss all my friends yeah you know i i want to play with my friends he says, son, he says, sometimes you got to make a change and sometimes you have to make a decision. And this is the time to do both. And uh, I always remember that. And honestly, uh, for me going to the Marlies at that point in my career was was very, very important because it got uh, that, that boy, that was like 50 pounds ago. But, uh, <laughs> um, but but, you know, it was a, it was a huge, important change and going from, uh, you know, Wexford to the Marlies and. You know, we got to practice at Maple Leaf Gardens, and I'd only been there once. I'd been there once. I, I was. I remember this. I was. We were uh, sitting at that time. It was red, uh, blue, green, and grays, and uh, we were sitting in the greens. And it's first time there. And uh, Detroit was playing against Toronto, and Gordy Howe came down on uh, uh, his opposite side and snapped the wrist shot. And Brucey Gamble, who was like five foot two at that point, you know, if he was that tall, he, he they even wasn't wearing a mask. And he ducked and he hit the crossbar when I couldn't believe the speed. And, uh, you know, it was just <laughs> unbelievable. And also on that day, and I can you imagine this? Um, Bobby Kennedy was in the audience. And they introduced him. He stood up. And, you know, of course, he's a very flamboyant man. And, and uh, you know, like I, I was, you know, I was thrilled to, that I got to see Gordy Howe score a goal. And, and, and uh, I, I got to see uh, uh, Bobby Kennedy. And uh, I got to see my first Leaf game. That's pretty awesome. Mm. So, well, Scott, you were on with the Marlboro yourself at one point, weren't you? I was drafted by them, but uh, I decided not to go 
Uh, Sherbrooke drafted me fourth overall. I think I was the Marley's fourth pick, I think, in the third round. And George Armstrong and Johnny Bauer came down to see me. And you know what? I really wanted to go to the Marlies, but they had just won a Memorial Cup. I would have played with Andy, too, uh, mm -hmm. if I had gone there. Uh, or on the same team. I might not have played on the line with them because <laughs> the year before they won a Memorial Cup. Uh, but I think it was the right move to go to Sherbrooke where I, you know, I got a, an opportunity right away to play on the top line. And, uh, you know, I think everything since then speaks for itself that that was probably the right decision. You know, funny, Rick, you said that, that Sherbrooke was one of the, at that time, there was only three teams that went to the Memorial Cup. And Sherbrooke uh, was one of the teams that we played against in the Memorial Cup that year. They were good. Yeah. They were really good. Yeah. And then my first year, we went to the Memorial Cup in uh, Vancouver. We had New West, Ottawa. And it was funny because I had played center all the way up. And then a couple of right wingers got hurt in training camps. And I said, can you play right wing? I said, I'll play wherever you want me to play. So I played right wing that whole first year. You know, 51 goals, 110 points, rookie of the year in the league. We go to the Memorial Cup. We watch New West practice, and they got a gigantic team. All of a sudden, two centermen go down in our practice, groin or whatever, back. And I had to move into center and play on the second line. So, uh, But, hey, you're playing a Memorial Cup. It's quite an experience. And, uh, you know, my parents were there and everything. So it was, it was really cool. So you know when uh, uh, when I went to the Memorial Cup, we uh, we had to play against New West in the final, and they'd already beaten us, I think, like six to four in the first round robin game. But every we were all afraid. Our, our biggest guy in our team was Trevor Johansson. He was like five foot ten, maybe two hundred pounds. That was our biggest guy, and we only had two guys who were uh, twenty years of age. One was Bruce Brudo, and the other was uh, Craig Crawford. And Craig Crawford was hurt, so Gabby was our oldest guy in the team. So they would warm up, okay, we, from our blue line yeah. to their zone. We weren't allowed to step across because they were going to kill us. So the worst <laughs> thing that happens is, is that a big hunk of ice comes out right at the top of the face-off circle in our zone. So we got like 18 guys skating around inside the tops of the circles in our zone because we were too afraid to go out. They thought we were going to kill us. So, right. Oh, my goodness. And I think that's the reason we won. We they did this, so you know, it's funny. John, they did the exact same thing to us. They they skated in <laughs> towards right over our blue line, and we had this crazy uh, bugger from Boston. Mike Breen was his name, and he went up to the red line. He goes, "If you guys get the hell out of here now, or I'm gonna bite your goddamn ear off." <laughs> and then they did. They backed off. They stayed in their own zone. <laughs> well, you know, after the uh, newest Mr. Bruins uh, out west, they stopped having warmups together. They started having warm. Yes, you know, one team would warm up, then the next team warm because of all the stuff that they they created. You know, so uh, we, uh, we were definitely afraid. We were definitely afraid of them, no question. Wasn't that that was Ernie Punch McLean? It was the coach of that, wasn't he? Yeah. Ran all yes. Them? Yeah. I think he mm -hmm. went four years in a row to the Memorial Cup. I think they they, yes, they lost to us, then they lost to uh, Hamilton Fin Cups or St. Catharines Fin Cups the next year, and then I think they beat Sherbrooke. And then uh, they beat somebody else. So following no, the following they lost row. to Ottawa. They went four years in a row. Yeah, yeah, and, they, and yeah, and uh, didn't they? Wasn't that then Barry Beck was on that team at one point? Yes, he was. yeah, Barry yeah. Beck was drafted the same year as me. I think he went second overall. 
but they had like yeah. they had like ten guys as big as him. It was crazy. Oh yeah. Lots. Well, the only guy I think the only guy they had under six feet was Stan Smeal, but he'd run anybody over as hard as <laughs> as any of those other guys did. <laughs> yeah, he was he was a tough kid. He bite your kneecap off. Hey, John, I yeah, want to ask, I, I, was, I was trying to check with uh, Paul Patsko, our resident uh, historian also, and I couldn't find anything. I, when you were at Markham Waxers, didn't you play the Russian under-16 team or something? And didn't they bring you guys down to the gardens and play? Or am I imagining that? So here's what happened. If if you were to play with the Markham Waxers Junior B team at the time, okay, you had to be of midget age. Yes. So we were all midget age playing up in the junior which at that time was a little unusual, right? Yeah. So what happened was uh, they bring the Red Army midget team over. So they're playing actually midget teams, but all the real good midgets in Toronto, in Ontario, were all playing up in junior. So they, Harold Ballard hated the Russians for whatever reason. And so he, he said, well, come and play our Mark, Markham Waxes because they're all midget age. But also uh, they sent down me, they sent down uh, Mark Napier and John Tonelli, who were all still midget age, That's right. playing ju major junior A. And, um, we, you know, we were, we beat them four to one, but it could have been maybe seven or eight to one. But there was like 15,000 people in Maple Leaf Gardens to watch a, a midget hockey game. And uh, it, it was one of the most exciting things for, for me that, uh, you know, in my lifetime. All right. Well, I was at that game and I'll tell you what, the, the crowd was electric that night. It was pretty awesome. Yeah. yeah. And again, yeah, I remember that was when, you know, we didn't think the Russians were that good. You remember in 72 and all that stuff. And they were good. We we just didn't uh, recognize it. That's all. Yeah. And then, Harold, I don't think the Russians ever played in that building again after that, did they? Uh, they, they played once in the 72 series, I think. And maybe once in the 74 series, but that was the WHA. I'm not sure. You have to check on your historians. But, uh, again, my memory is a little foggy as I'm getting older. <laughs> Well, they played the Marley. They played that Marley team when Boudreaux was there the first year. They played them at the Gardens, an exhibition game, and I think Karlamov actually played. And he yeah, no, no, they, I, I played in that game. That was that was play? after that. Was that after that? Was that was after that. Yeah, because I remember, I remember we brought uh, we brought uh, who was it? We brought a, a defenseman from Aurelia Terriers back. Daryl Alexander. Uh, no, it was uh, Daryl Slot, not uh, Sly. No, no, I, I, I know it. But again, memory's a little foggy right now. But, uh, but we that was uh, and uh, we lost. Uh, I think five to three or five to two. But Karlamov did play in that game, and he was he was outstanding. But that was like a year or two later. Yeah. Okay. That was the that was the other game, and you guys played them that that time. So talk about uh, like that Marley team you played on. You guys that was just loaded, and you guys go to the Merrill Cup with John Tanelli, who had over a hundred mm -hmm. points. Well, what happened was that was when the WHA was taking guys right. out. And um, so what happened was the uh, junior the Ontario uh, Major Junior League made us sign contracts at the start of the year saying that if we went to the WHA, like Rick did, you know, he was a jumper. <laughs> and uh, but, but we had to sign a contract saying that if uh, we went to the WHA, the WHA team owned the major junior team, like, uh, like, I think it was like $30,000. You know what I mean? Like it was like a, yeah. a, a, a fee for development fee. Yeah. And so what happened was, uh, Napier was the first said he was going to jump and he signed with the Toros that year, but we were still playing. 
you know, we were still playing it. Uh, we were all 17. So it was me, uh, Tonelli, Napier, and uh, Trevor Johansson. And our lawyer said that we didn't have to abide by the contract because we were 17 when we signed it. We weren't of legal age. And so it was like a, a forced uh, contract upon a, a minor. And so what happened was the very first game of the playoffs that year, um, myself and uh, Johansson, Tonelli and Napier all had to set out the first game because the legal dispute wasn't over. So finally, we, we, we signed a, an agreement that everybody was happy to, but John Tonelli didn't feel it, it was because he, he knew he was going to Houston to play with the house uh, in the WHA and he, he wouldn't come back and play, which, you know, like uh, Tonelli was a huge part of our team. He was a great player. He scored like 50 goals that year. He was, he was awesome. And you know, big rugged guy, but uh, you know, he missed out on playing in the Memorial cup. So uh, I'm glad I came back. I think Napes was glad he came back and Trevor and, everybody else, but certainly missing Tonelli and still winning. Uh, yeah, I think we had like eight guys with over 40 goals that year on, on a team. You know, now we had probably 10 goals against a game too, but <laughs> if we scored 11, we were okay. <laughs> yeah, the teams were, uh, they didn't want to get in a shootout with you guys, that's for sure. Because See, that, sound, that sounds like, uh, that, that sounds like, that sounds like our days with the Leafs and <laughs> I don't know. Uh, the same but different. Now, Andy, talk about your uh, draft year. Uh, things were a lot different than they were then, but, you know, you were hanging around the gardens. You are watching the Leafs all year. Did Were you hearing any rumblings that they were possibly going to take you or who was going to take you? Um, I thought I was going to go in, like, the middle to late first round. Um, but you have to remember back then, too, nobody went to the draft, you know. So I remember draft. And I actually wanted to go to Los Angeles. I thought that that would be a great place to play. Um, anyway, so uh, I remember the day of the draft. I'm outside. I got like uh, goalie pads on, both, and I got a, a first baseman's mitt on, and, a, and a, a normal glove. And I'm playing goal. My brothers are shooting on me. So my grandmother comes out and says, "John, there's a telephone call for you." So I go and get it. So John, it's Jim Gregory. He says, "Let's let you know we picked you in the first round, 11th overall." And he says, "We're going to get in touch with your agent." I said, "Oh, great, perfect." I masked down what they're playing. And so then my, my grandmother, she didn't even know who it was either. So she says, can you go to the store for me? So I got into my 68 Nova with the hole in the floorboards and stuff like that. And I went and got her what you want. Now, when I came back to the house, okay, there was like a thousand people on my front lawn. I, I didn't grasp the, I don't know, the how wonderful it was. You know what I mean? Like, I thought it was yeah. just like going from like midget to, or Bantam to midget or whatever like that. But, uh, you know, there was... And it was like a party at my house for like a whole week. You know, my parents, you imagine, you know, growing up as a Maple Leafs fan, have to watch it every twice a week and uh, their son getting drafted there. So it was it was a lot bigger deal than I understood it to be, you know. Yeah, no question. So, I mean, so now with all that on your mind, how anxious were you heading into camp after that summer? And how, how did the summer go for you after that? Well, it was good. I, I mean, I, I was nervous because um, – you know, like it, it was a different time back then. And, you know, even Rick knows, like, I don't know how many fights Rick ha had to fight his first year and, uh, to survive. And that was a little bit of a different game. So, you know, I was out there playing with men at the time. And I and I, I really felt that uh, I didn't play as good as I should have in training camp in the sense that I, I didn't know whether I was good enough. 
you know, uh, and then I got sent down to Dallas, uh, you know, and in the meantime, Mike Bossy who was drafted behind me. Uh, that might've got Jim Gregory fired. I'm not sure. But, uh, uh, <laughs> but uh, he, you know, he was, you know, he's going to, he was on his way to scoring 50 goals in the first year, you know? And so, uh, you know, I felt kind of bad that I, and I, I felt that I left, I, I let the Leafs down by not playing up to my ability. You know, and then, you know, the other thing too is Roger Nielsen was the coach and he was his first year coach and he hated the Marlies, absolutely hated them because we just shit kick him all the time when he was with Peterborough. Yeah. And, you know, and he was a very defensive, you know, and, you know, our guy, our guys are like, you know, running all over the place, you know, like George Armstrong, you know, he opened the gate and let us go. And, you know, that's why we scored a lot of goals. And Roger hated that because he thought it was just like, it was too much, you know. And so that's why, you know, he didn't like me to start off with. And then he felt that I wasn't a good enough checker because he thought that at that time, Montreal Canadiens were winning four in a row and uh, in a way winning four in a row. And so what he wanted to do is get each guy to play like a certain guy on on, um, on the Montreal Canadiens. So he wanted me to play like uh, Rajon Uhl. And I go, Roger, I, I'm not Rajon Uhl. I can score way more goals than that guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I gotta so tell you one of, thing. I gotta tell you one thing, Andy. Getting drafted before Mike Bossy, there was a lot of guys got drafted before him. He went 16th overall, so you shouldn't feel that bad. And the year I got drafted, fifth overall, there were guys like uh, Craig Hartsburg, Ray Bork, Michelle Goulet. There was a lot of guys got drafted after me as well. So you, you, you can't think about that forever. <laughs> well, I'm 65 and it's still bugging me. <laughs> well, and so Andy, your first camp also, you would have been, a lot of the players would have been familiar with you because they'd have watched you play, I'm sure, saw you around and mm -hmm. you'd be familiar with him. So it might have been, was that a little bit easier to adjust for you or did, did you even let that bother you at all? Well, no, because, you know, I have to remember back then, you know, you were the new guy in town. Well, you're taking somebody's job. That's correct. So mm -hmm. the guy's job you're taking, they're trying to kill you. Okay. And I remember this too. Like uh, uh, we had like uh, scrimmage games, right? So the one scrimmage game, I go around Ian Turnbull like he's standing still, right? So I can kind of get he's kind of a little pissed off, right? Honestly, almost the same play come up. And he, and he used to try and stand up with the blue line, you know. But I had a lot of speed. I was I gained 40 pounds lighter. And I went around him again. <laughs> So he comes up to me, he goes, if you do that one more time, he says, I'm going to chop your legs off. <laughs> and I believe them. <laughs> so I, I just scored two goals at practice. I didn't want to go around to, you know, press my luck. <laughs> uh, well, that was, I mean, you know, you're right, though, Andy. That was the way it was back then. It was like, you know, there was only so many jobs and there was a lot of guys coming into camp, younger guys, and, and the older guys were like, no, you're not going to take my goddamn job. And you're right. I mean, I remember my first, second, probably even third year, how many times I had to fight to keep my job and, and stay there. And, you know, you don't see that anymore. It's, uh, it's kind of like, I, I don't even know how to explain it, but the, everything is so different now. You sign a contract, you're on a one-way contract, you're not going anywhere. You're not going to the minors. Uh, you're you're going to play on the big team. Well, and, you know, the other thing too, Rick, and, and you know this more than I do, uh, 
is there was no free agency when we played. You know, I think maybe right at the very tail end of your career, eh, Rick, they, it was a free agency, but it was like five players if you'd signed a, a, an unrestricted free agent. So, uh, you know, there was no player movement. And that's why, you know, 12 years, I think only three teams won the Stanley Cup when I was there. You know, because, you know, they had a good team and it would last that with two or three or four years. You know, I think the only exception was Calgary that one year, uh, but they beat Montreal, who won it so many times before. So uh, it was very difficult to uh, get into that upper echelon. And then once free agency came along, uh, which I think was good for the game and and certainly good for the players, certainly monetarily wise and uh, certainly the way they get treated now. Um, But, uh, you know, back then it was like, you know, you're, you're just trying to make the playoffs and and trying to survive and do the best you could? Well, it was 32 years old was free agency when we were playing. And not only that, we had recallable waivers, which was another deterrent, because they could put anybody on recallable waivers, like myself, and nobody's going to put a claim in because they know they're going to recall you off waivers and try to make a deal. So they could get anybody to the minors that they wanted to. And I, I... I agree with you that I think it's great that the players now have the power that we didn't have back then. And I think it's great for the game. It's great for the players. Um, I I love it. I I think it's great that they are able to move around and do what they want. The the one thing I don't like, Rick, is um, these no trade, no movement clauses. Uh, You know, for me, if if a team was really that unhappy with me – I, I don't want to stay there. Would you want to stay to a team that was unhappy and wanted to move you? And so, no. and like, sometimes you can't move the player, but I mean, uh, if you have a no trade, now you can't do anything. And uh, I just think that the player should, you know, hey, if, if you don't want me or somebody else want me or somebody else is going to have to pay me. And what I think it should be is just like, you know, if you want to buy the guy out, you buy him out, you know, and, and because you you said, you know, let's say it's uh, five years at five million, you've got to pay the full price and then that guy goes. As opposed to, I would rather have that as a team even, as opposed to having a, a guy saying, no, I'm only going to go to these many teams or I'm not going to go anywhere unless I say so. You know, I think it's it, it, it hurts the player and hurts the teams. Just just my opinion. And you know what opinions are like? Everybody has one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Just like something else, but uh, yes, no, I, I, and I think it hurts the team. I think probably a little bit more because there's times where players get to a point in their career where they're kind of, they're almost at the end, you know, but they still have three or four years left on the contract and they got a no trade, no movement, and they can't do anything with them and they don't want to leave. And so well, you're right. You know, the, other, the other scenarios like a Keith Seabrook, where um, the Blackhawks thought they might have a chance to win one more, you know, after winning three. And so in order to sign Seabrook back again, they had to sign him like a five-year deal, which they knew he wasn't going to be able to finish. They didn't feel, but they felt that they needed him uh, in the mix for another year or two to win, win one more. And so now they got hung with a five-year deal, you know, at, at a you know fairly high rate, which I think he deserved because he was a great player, but um, you know, they got kind of stuck with that type of contract and, uh, you know, it is what it is. I mean, it's just just the way things are now. So, John, I'm going to go back to where you're, you go through your first camp with the Leafs. You get sent to Dallas. So this, you know, playing for the Marty's here, you know, in Wexford and, and playing for Markham and all, you never left home before. So this was a first for you to step away from home. So that might have been a big, must have been a big adjustment for you, not only from the cultural standpoint, but from a personal standpoint, but also 
stepping to the pro level. But on the other hand, there would have been a lot of players who had been familiar with their, some of the faces around the room. So it might have eased a little bit. But how was that first year in Dallas? Um, well, it was actually, you're right. It was very hard because I lived at home the whole time. And uh, to use a, a Billy DeLego expression, Rich, Rick will appreciate this. I didn't know shit from Wild Honey. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, when I get down there, my, my mom gave me a recipe book and how to do laundry. And this is how dumb I was down there. Two things, okay? Me and Rocky Saginaw and uh, Kevin Campbell, we all wanted to live in this one complex. There was only two apartments available. And they were $250 a month. So we drew straws and I lost. So I had to go find another place. So about a block away, I find this place. It's got a loft. It is freaking beautiful. All furnished and everything. And it was $350 a month. I had to phone my agent to figure out whether I could afford it. That's how stupid I was down there. And then I, I go to do laundry and uh, I, I take a book with me because I thought somebody was going to steal my laundry if I left it in there. You know, who the heck wants my dirty underwear anyway? You know, but, but that was like the kind of growing up period. So in essence, it was probably a blessing in disguise to get sent down there so that I could learn to be on my own and, and learn to be a man, you know. Now, what that's, about uh, Oh. Sorry, that that that's you know what that's why I think John. I think nowadays I like to see a lot of players go to college. Uh, like my son got drafted by Sudbury, but he went to the U.S. program, went to college. Like his last year, he took a cooking course. He, you know, I mean, he 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 learned in college how it was to live on his own, and then when he turned pro. It was easy. He would go to the grocery store, go home, cook his own meals and eat good meals. Most of the other guys are going to restaurants and eating food that they probably shouldn't be eating. Yeah, and listen, I mean, we all grew up in different ways, but uh, certainly for me, uh, again, uh, absolutely for me, it was a blessing in disguise to get sent down uh, because I grew up down there, and then I think I became a better player and a better person for it. Now, some of the characters you, some of the seasoned veterans, you know, you were usually one of the leaders, one of the better players in your team growing up. You go down here and you had a great year, your first year in Dallas, but some of the guys, we got to talk about our old vet, Jim McKenna. There's somebody to watch play for the Leafs and watch him probably growing up playing. You must have had some stories now being in the same locker room as him. I honestly, I love Jimmy McKenna. He was like a, a couple of things. Uh, Jerry McNamara was a coach down there and, uh, Jerry's a really good guy, but he was very strict, you know, he's very strict Catholic upbringing and, you know, never swore, but he's very, you know, abrupt and stuff like that. So he comes on the ice and Jimmy McKinney comes out just after he comes on. So, you know, Jimmy kind of waddles how he walks and skates, if you know him, and he waddles out there. So now Jerry freaks out. He goes, I told you guys to be on the ice before I get here. You know the time and blah, 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 blah. blah. goes on and on, right? Next day another practice right so i see jimmy and he's hustling to get on there because you know he takes his time at everything right he's hustling and you know he was one of the few guys back then would put his skates on first and put his pants on he goes to put his pants on and a skate goes clean through his pants and rips a huge hole in him like the, you know you couldn't even put him on so in the meantime he's got to get changed so now it's getting down to the last minute he was so afraid that jerry would give him crap he goes out there and he never wore underwear so all he had was like a garter belt jock 
and his bare ass, and he's skating around. He says, Jerry, I'm on time. I'm on time. He's got his bare ass. I get out. Well, Jerry, Jerry, he was mad, but he had to break out laughing because it was the funniest thing. You know, and, and uh, you know, with Jimmy, he stayed at this guy by the name of Greg Vanek, who was first pick uh, overall for, for uh, Chicago that year, and he stayed at his house. Jimmy slept on a hammock all year. <laughs> I go, no way you're doing this. And yeah, sure enough. He says, yeah, here's the hammock. I'm in and that. And we played tennis whenever we could together. I mean, we really enjoyed each other. So, you know, at that time, Jimmy had stopped drinking at all, you know. And uh, so we would go into the bar and I would order a beer and he he would order this stuff called near beer. Now, you remember, this is in 1977. So, you know, I'm, I'm sure the non-alcoholic beer tastes much better than back then. And uh, I said, how do you drink that? So he says, we are taste. I said, oh, my God, it was horrible. It was absolutely horrible. I said, how do you drink this stuff? He says, well, I only smoke about a pound a day now. <laughs> I got to ask you, Gandhi, were you in Dallas? Were you there? When, I heard the story about somebody cutting Jerry's stick because he used to like to go out, I guess, before the players and take slappers and everything. And someone cut his stick almost in half. And when he took a slapper, it broke, and he bl I forget, he blamed somebody, I can't remember who it was, and went ballistic. And I don't know if you were there that year or not. Yeah, I was there, and, and uh, I I think he blamed Rocky Sagan, but it wasn't Rocky. So here's one thing, too, you guys have to remember. Um, we split the team with Chicago Blackhawks. And so half of the guys were Blackhawks guys. So they kind of took an exception because they were a little older guys than, than we, we had. We had one young guy was John Savard, but they were a little older guys. So they didn't like the, you know, like, again, Jerry's, he was very, he's a great guy, but he's just, you know, very abrupt and very straightforward. So they didn't like that too much. And so, and guys, I think it was, I, I know who it was, but ended up cutting his stick. And I think he blamed Rocky for it and was like just yelling at him and, Rocky, Rocky didn't even know what the hell happened, but it was sure funny when he went down, you know. But, but I think Jerry was more worried about the cost of the stick because it was cut in half than anything else. He, this is a guy, I want to tell you one last story about Jerry. So about the first week I'm down there, Jerry calls me into the office and he says, look, he says, you're making the big bucks down here. You know, I was on a one-way contract making like 40 grand a year, you know. And, and, and half of it was gone because the uh, Canadian government would take 60% of it, so it didn't matter. But he says, you're making the big bucks out here. I don't want to see you going out and spending it all over the town and stuff like that, right? So Rocky Saginaw says to me the next day, he says, hey, come here. He says, I want you to see the suit, you know, and blah, blah, blah. So uh, I go, well, I don't want to buy a suit because Jerry's on me about spending money. He says, it's $60. It's a fitted suit. I'm going, okay, sign me up. So I go and get the suit. So the next game I wear it. It's a dark blue suit. And Jerry sees walking. His eyes roll back and his head. He goes, get in my office. Get in my office. So, all right. So I come in the office and he looks at me, he says, what did I just tell you a couple of days ago? Quit spending your money. So why not spending a lot of money? He goes, you got a brand new Brooks Brothers suit on. And I go, Jerry, this suit cost me $60. He goes, where'd you get it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So again, Jerry was a good person. He's an awesome person. You know, we, we had our differences, but, uh, you know, he, he was a, a, a good guy down there and he was, he was a good coach for us down there. So talk about your first game playing with the Leafs and you get the call, walk us through the whole day and what happened? Well, nothing because I got DNP'd my first game. I, I, I got called up maybe six or seven times that year and Roger would like, you, you had like three forwards plus an extra. I wouldn't play a shift the whole game. <laughs> 
the whole game. So I, I remember this one time oh, no. too. It's like, yeah, you look at the record. I DMP'd maybe six times. So uh, one of my buddies from uh, school, Andy Huzar, he's sitting up in the reds. Like I can see him, right? So it's the third period, and we're losing by about three goals. So all I can hear is Andy saying, he goes, for God's sakes, Roger, put Anderson out there. And I'm going, you know, no, I'll never see the ice now. But, uh, you know, that was just the way it was back then. And, uh, again, I, you know, I think Roger was a good coach. I, you know, I wasn't his cup of tea. That was, uh, that was the bottom line. And, uh, you know, uh, nothing I could do to change that, you know. Now, let's talk about you, – you make the big team, you stick, you start producing a little bit, but your third year in the league, punches back in charge, so there's a lot of things we can go with in this direction. I mean, as a kid, you're growing up watching him at those iconic teams in the 60s, and Punch was an iconic figure in Toronto. You mm-hmm. got him in charge after Jim Gregory, but he makes this trade for sending two of the most popular players in the team to two – well, let's put this mildly because they're our friends – two maybe – problematic uh, kids coming out of Vancouver. <laughs> well, you, you know, you have to understand too, when you're, when you're playing the game in the national league, you know, you don't really follow the juniors anymore. You know, you just don't. So yeah. uh, they traded Jerry Butler and, and Tiger Williams and Tiger actually was a very good friend of mine uh, on the lease. You know, I went over to dinner's house quite a bit and um, uh, I ended up playing with him in Hartford in, in my last couple of years. And he was at my house like every freaking night. Uh, but, uh, you know, what you have to remember is that hockey is hockey. And, and, you know, really at that time, you're just a piece of meat. Like, listen, Wayne Gretzky got traded, you know, so, so it was what it was. And then, uh, you know, when, when Rick and Billy came in, um, you know, I was shocked how much better our team was right away. I I mean, it took them a, a couple of games to get going, but they were, they were good right away. You could see it. And, and I think Rick will agree with me. One of the most underrated players in the whole National Hockey League uh, w- when we played with it was Builder Lego. I mean, he could shoot. He could skate. Like, he, he would, like, smoke a pack of cigarettes a day and still beat everybody around the rink. I mean, it, it was unbelievable. He was just a, a really, really good athlete. And I thought he was so underrated. Uh, and then, you know, Rick and I got the chance to play with him, and yeah. I think it helped both our careers for sure. Uh, but it was, it was hard at the, at the start, and I think it was – you know, uh, I think it was a breath of fresh air for Rick and Billy where they, you know, they, they got out of uh, a bad situation there where they, where they, I don't, I don't think that they were treated very well. Uh, you know, Rick had probably expounded on that before um, and, and unfairly. And so, and I think it was a, a real veteran team in Vancouver too, where it was hard for young guys. And you have to remember Rick was, well, you were only 19 then, you know, and Billy was maybe 20. And so it was really hard for them to to make an establishment. And I went through it myself. I, I know exactly what, what happened. So it was great for them to get traded for Toronto. Uh, it was great for Toronto. You know, the first 50-goal scorer in Maple Leaf history. And, you know, I was fortunate enough to have a chance to play with them. So uh, it was – and, again, Billy was one of the most underrated guys uh, in, in the league. And so, you know, we had a real good – we had a real good line. We had a good run for a bit. Uh, but, uh, you know, when we played, there was, there was only a few teams that, that had, like, three or four really good lines. You know, we might have had two. And so, uh, you know, and our defense was very young at the time outside of Borea. So, you know, we, we were uh, going through a tough time uh, as a Leaf organization. So you, uh, you mentioned Billy Durlego, and uh, you're absolutely right that I think he was underrated. Like, he was my centerman for about half of the 350-goal seasons. And then he mm-hmm. got hurt. So they brought yeah. in Dan Dau, who finished the other part. 
So Billy comes back from his injury the next season. They put him on left wing. He scores 40 goals. So yeah. that tells you right there how good he was and how underrated he was as a player. Yeah. Like, what did he yeah, have, 92 yeah. goals in 50-some games in the Western League? Yeah, yeah, he had 96 goals in 50 games. Like, Yeah, yikes. I mean. Where, where, where did they get the goalies out there, from the CNIB? Or what, what, what was that? <laughs> well, no, right. I think he had, Dave, he had Dave Semenko on his team, so that probably helped. Yeah, actually, you know, and, and I did play with Dave. Uh, it was me, Ray Ferraro, and Dave Semenko when I was in Hartford. So it was fun. I got to skate all the ways. Nobody bothered me. It was awesome. Awesome. <laughs> so, Andy, I want to ask you, now, being a Toronto kid growing up, we've harped on this a lot here today, uh, you know, playing through the organization, watching Maple Leafs growing up and watching the games twice a week, as you mentioned, and all that. And the standard that this team is held in, and would be regarded held in right across Canada, as a matter of fact, maybe mind just Toronto, you're now a part of it. But you got the punch coming back. The Daryl Sittler stuff going on, Ballard, all this circus, like Boris Salmon, we had him on. He said he'd come to the rink every day and he'd think, what's it going to be in circus land today? And he'd just walk in, just keep his, you know, fingers crossed that nothing stupid was going to happen, but they were always prepared. How did you deal with all that? And the other part about this is, did you just shake your head thinking, this is a team that I watched all my life and had held in such regard like everybody else. And this is, this is a joke at times what's going on here. Well, uh, if, if you remember, uh, uh, when Punch Imlach was coach um, in the 60s, uh, Frank Mahovlich had a nervous breakdown from this. That's guy. right. <laughs> and uh, so, like, he was, again, he was very old school, very demanding. And what, and, and I remember one time, uh, we're going to do video, you know, and it was very rudimentary at the time. It was just a VHS. So he says, we're going to watch this whole tape. And there's punch just screaming at everybody and nobody knows what the hell he's talking about. Cause he's really not even looking at the video. And so uh Miroslav Fritscher gets up and he says, I've had enough. This is bull crap. And he leaves it. So punch thought that he was agreeing with him, but he was, he was telling punch he's full of shit and, and leaving. But he thought, cause you know, he's, English wasn't great. He thought, yeah, you're right. Punch. And I'm not staying around this team and leaves. I go, Oh my God. It, it was, it was insanity, um, but I have to tell you, this, it was harder on the older guys because they were taking the, the brunt of it. You know, uh, it was me and and uh, Laurie Boschman and Rocky. You know, we were just coming into our own. I think, you know, I had like twenty five or twenty six goals that that year, and uh, I love this picture. But uh, you know, uh, again, uh, I felt I felt like Boria and Daryl. Uh, and of course, Lanny ended up getting traded. All the older guys took the brunt of it much more than the younger guys. Yeah, I think, uh, like, I know I get the question a lot, but I think part of the problem during that time was Harold more than anything else. Harold would not pay the money to hire a good general manager that knew what he was doing or a good coach. And let's face it, we didn't have the greatest coaches the seven years that I was there. Um, but then mistakes were made. Like when you think about the guys that were brought in at 18 years old, Jim Benning, you know, even Gary Nyland, who physically was ready to play, but mentally not Boimstruck. You can't like those guys should have all went back to junior for another year, maybe two and matured a little bit, but you know, Jerry made those decisions and, and they were bad ones. 
Well, uh, you know, again, uh, you know, Jimmy Benning went on to have a decent career and, you know, uh, Bob McGill, you know, he, you know, he was what he was and, uh, you know, Freddie uh, never really came around, but, uh, you know, you're going to make mistakes. Uh, but I think that you're absolutely right, Rick, that they put him in a position not to succeed. And yeah. so I think that's why I think it hurt Jimmy, Jimmy's um, uh, development. I think it hurt Bob McGill's development. You know, Bob was tough enough to play in the league, but I think he really needed one more year junior. And again, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. But uh, when you play, you know, those three guys on your regular defense, uh, you know, you have to score ten goals a game because there are so many chances <laughs> again. And I'm not blaming the kids. I'm really not blaming them. It's not their fault for, for putting it. No, for putting them in a in a, a situation uh, where they weren't going to succeed. Like even Ally Afraidy, he's the first person that will tell you. I shouldn't have played that year. I should have went back and played another year junior. And he, yeah. he, you know, he understands. He says, I would have been a better player quicker in my career if I had gone back and played another year or two in Belleville. Yeah, no, I, I, I think nobody will disagree with you on that. Though. That's for sure. But listen, hey, every organization's making mistakes and, uh, you know, we, certainly it wasn't just it wasn't just the least. Believe me, everybody was trying to get into that upper echelon. And again, without without free agency, very tough to do. Very well, there's, to do. there's there's free agency and there's the other side of it. After your fourth 30 goal season, you get the call that you're being moved. How did that all unfold and how was your mindset over all of that? Or did you even know it was coming? Uh, well, you know. It really wasn't getting along with the management at that time. Uh, you know, like I, I think, you know, Rick and I and, and Billy were, you know, we're probably the, the best players and forwards on the team at that time. Yes, you were. And, um, you know, we, we were taking the, the heat for not winning. And I think the, I think the one year, Rick, I, I, if I'm mistaken, I think there was only one line that scored uh, more goals than us collectively, and that was Marcel Dion's line. And I, I think yeah. he scored more than, than Bossy's line that year. And and so, you know, you can only do so much. You know, you it's a team game. It's a team game for a reason. You know, you, you need the whole enchilada, you know, to make the burrito. And so, you know, you, you we know. just didn't have everything, you know. And and so I, I, I felt bad. I, you know, I took it personally because I, I really wanted us to win. I wanted the Maple Leafs to win a Stanley Cup, but I wanted to be a part of that. Um, but we just didn't have the horses. And, and, I, and I will tell you this, even if it meant me going down to a second line, I was okay with that as long as we won. But we, we never, you know, they brought in uh, uh, Peter Inichuk and Miroslav Freacher and uh, Walt Podumny and Jerry McNamara. And I remember he said to Rick and I, he goes, you know, these guys are going to outscore you guys. They're going to become our number one line. And, you know, and I go to Jerry, I go, these guys won't play enough games collectively to do that. And I was right. I mean, they, how many games they were hurt all the time, and and not that they weren't good players. I you know, I don't want to give them credit, but mm -hmm. uh, they weren't better than us, and they weren't going to take our jobs. Uh, and but that's but but they wanted that just to, you know, because I think that Rick and I and Bill kind of rubbed Jerry the wrong way a little bit, and uh, we were at that point where we wanted to win, and there was nothing more we could do about it, you know. Well, listen, when funny. I got traded, I get, I get traded. I was picking up a boat. I was gonna go fishing and, and I got I I got there and it came over the radio before I knew because there was no cell phones back then. And the guy I was dealing with with his boat, he looks at me and he goes, Are you okay? I go, why? What's wrong? Well he just got traded to Quebec. 
ah, uh, okay, you know. Yeah, you know. <laughs> and, and I, I have to say this: like I was, I was really upset that I got traded because I loved the lease. I absolutely loved the lease, but I knew it was the best thing for me. It was like my dad told me I got to leave Wexford. I had to leave at that point, and I didn't want to leave Rick and Bill and all my Stewie, Gavin, all my friends there again. But I think it was probably best for my career just at that point. And, um, you know, uh, it, it turned out to be good. You know, I only lasted 66 games there. And then I got traded to Hartford, which was was awesome. It was the best thing for me because I got out of Canada at 60% tax. Yeah. Uh, and then the dollar was worth <laughs> the dollar was worth 24% more. When I saw my first paycheck, I thought I won the lottery. And, uh, <laughs> and it's funny, too, you know, when you're in Quebec – and somebody gets traded there, they, uh, uh, you know, they used to give you your check at your stall, right? So whenever the, the new player would come in from the States and he get, gets set down, they have a crying towel and smelling salts, you know, and, and a coffee, you know, just because they knew they were going to be upset with him when they got like 60% taken off your check. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Well, That's I remember I got traded there. <laughs> John, I do remember the time, just exactly what you were talking about. We played two games in a row, and I think uh, one of them was on the road, or Chicago and Washington, I think. And we lost both games. And I remember, and I know the writers do not do the headlines in, on their columns, but it said Maloney blames Durlego's line for the two losses. And I remember those two games. We didn't score a goal, but we, we didn't get scored against either. So anyway, we after practice, well, that was a miracle before the next game, you know, like <laughs> then after practice, he blows a whistle. Everybody comes in. He goes, okay, everybody off except Padubny, Vive, Anderson, and Durlego. Walt was coming off an injury. He says, okay, start skating this way and don't stop until I tell you. Anyway, I got in a big pissing match with him and I remember our next home game. We all three of us sat out the first half of the first period. Then he started playing you and Billy. And I sat there the entire night and didn't play one shift. And because I I disagreed with him. And yeah, no, you know no. what I hey, but, but see, just, like, you know, back then you couldn't do that. Listen, remember I, I remember Punch Imlock coming down the hallway. We'd walk on the other side of the uh, other side of the hall just not to talk to him. You know, yeah. it, it was like, that was the way it was, you know, it was a, a real, you know, and, and the thing with Satch is, you know, Danny Malone, you called him Satch because yeah. he looked like Satchmo from, uh, yeah. from the Bowery Boys. Uh, but, uh, you know, the thing with Satch, he played with us. He knew us. Yeah. He was our friend. And then he like, he turned on us, you know, yeah. and I'm not sure whether that was Satch or whether it was coming from up top and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, that kind of, that kind of pissed me off a bit, but. You know. Well, I think it was coming from upstairs because I remember the one time Russ Cordner was in a, the only person on the ice in a red sweater. And Danny blew the whistle and he says, Russ, do you know why you're wearing that red sweater? And Russ was, he was kind of a smart ass too. And he goes, well, I don't know why, why? Like, or something like that. Danny, because that was the color of my face when I found out you went to Jerry McNamara and said, stop yelling at, get him to stop yelling at the young guys. <laughs> I'm like, oh boy, here we go. <laughs> so that was a start, as you said, yeah. that was a start of him kind of taking it out on us, the older guys, yeah. uh, because he wasn't allowed to yell at the young players. And 
That yeah. was Jerry's orders. And yeah. and the sad part is, by the end of it, the, his time in Toronto, Danny was finally starting to kind of get it as a coach. And then all of a sudden the season ends. We had a pretty decent season. And next yeah, you thing made you know, he wants to two. Yeah, we made it. We went to the second round two years in a row with him. And they wouldn't give him any more than a one-year deal. So he, he took off and went to Winnipeg. And that's that was kind of how it was for all seven years I was there. It was like, I think I had seven coaches in seven years. Yeah. Yeah. Again, it's tough. And, uh, you know, I, I think that, you know, when you said earlier that, you know, uh, Harold was part of the problem. And I think the part of the problem was, is that, you know, he was so used to being in that old six team league where, you know, they were all in cahoots with each other, you know, making trades together, uh, you know, helping one team or helping the other team, uh, you know, and he thought that that was the way it was still run. And mm -hmm. because he had such a shallow group of people that he could talk to, he never really hired anybody that he didn't actually know. And, and I'll give you an example. And I love Gordy Stellick, but uh, I don't think he was he was prepared to be the general manager of the Toronto Maple Police. And I know maybe you'll disagree with me, Rick, but I, and again, I do love Gordy, but I don't think he was prepared to be the, the general manager. And no, uh, I don't think he was either because he traded me. <laughs> <laughs> what a buffoon. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, so John, you know, so you finished off your career and we're just, we're running out of time here. It's been great speaking to you and we just really appreciate this. How did the coaching come about? Uh, well, you know, I had some coaches I really didn't like. I had some that I loved, but it was the ones I didn't like that made me get into coaching because this is what I wanted to prove. I wanted to prove that uh, you could treat players with respect, you know, make them work hard and, you know, and demand some stuff from them, but treat them like good people mm -hmm. and still win. I, I hated the fact that, that, you know, everybody thought, you know, coaching was, you had to be like coach cleats where you're yelling and screaming on everything all the time. Cause this is what I found out about coaching. And, and, and I, I proved honestly myself, right. Was that, you know, if somebody made a mistake on the bench, I would go down and tell them exactly what I wanted them to do. Now, if I'd went down there and started screaming at them, mm -hmm. you know, the whole message gets lost. The message is lost because all the guy knows that he's pissed off and he might not even know why I'm pissed off because I'm screaming at him. So my thought was that, listen, hey, either you either you, you do uh, what I want you to do or, or do what we're doing as a team or you won't play. So it was a very simple thing and because that was my hammer. It was, was ice time. And, uh, you know, I, I and listen, not to say that I didn't yell at the team collectively at some points, but as individuals, I treated them with respect and try to get them to do the best that they could do. Because I knew that if, if they were the best they could be, that would make our team the best it could be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Andy, because that was one of the things that when I started coaching, I, I kind of took as well. And like I would pick three players every single day that I was going to have a conversation with. And I know they were shitting their pants during practice when I tell them I want to see in my office after practice. But, <laughs> you know, and then they'd walk in there and then I, they'd sit down and I'd say, Hey, how's everything? Are you okay? How's the apartment? You know, is there anything we can do to make things better? And then they're sitting there going, Oh, 
like he really cares. And, yeah. you know, all of a sudden you, you, you get a lot of respect from these players when you treat them like that, like you said. And, uh, you know, because everybody wants to get treated with respect. And when you do right. that, I think you can get the best out of your players that way. Yeah, no. And that's kind of why I got into it. I, I, you know, like Joe Crozier tortured me. Like he was, he, he would call me over and he would take his gum out and put it behind his ear and say, Mr. Anderson, he says, what good are you doing? You don't hit, you don't check, you don't score goals. You know, he says, what, how are you helping this team? I go like, what, what's wrong with this guy? Like, I thought he was crazy. And, and uh, I, I was probably right. Um, but he, he just, he tortured me every day. He had, uh, Robert Picard had to go to the hospital because he, Oh yeah. <laughs> he, he, he lost his mind. You know, he had like a, a mental breakdown because he treated him so bad and that well, kind of stuff, he, you know, that kind of stuff, you know, made me resolve that I'm going to at least try to attempt to, to try and make a hockey team win without treating guys like shit. And that's basically what motivated me along to do it. And, you know, crap, I, you know, I, I couldn't get a job anywhere. You know, it was hard, you know, like coming out of playing and that. And I went down to the Southern League and uh, we had a real good year. And, uh, you know, then then I the, the team screwed me out of money. So I said, that's it. I'm done coaching. Uh, we, we lost in the finals. And then I, the guy from Quad Cities, the owner phones, says, I hear you're a good coach. I go, well, I think so, but I'm not there anymore. So he says, well, I want you to come. I said, no, I'm not going to do this anymore I'm at, at this level because, you know, I got – you know, I get ripped off for half of my salary that year. He says, I promise. Well, so, so the guy actually had a cottage in your mind and he came to my cottage. And so I was impressed that way. So he hired me on the spot, but what he didn't say was he didn't tell his general manager, which was <laughs> Howard Cornfield. And so now I got to go down and convince Howard that I'm the good guy and that, that I should be coach. And uh, he was really cold to me, Howard. Uh, you know, we're very good friends now, but at the time it was, it was a tough sell. And I ended up winning the championship that year, but um, it took a little bit of convincing, you know. That was the so, Mallards, wasn't it? Quad City Mallards? Yeah, yeah. The first year was Quad City Mallards. This picture here is of, of uh, uh, um, I think this is the second, this is the second championship in, uh, the last championship we won with the Wolves. Now, let me ask you this, Andy, as a coach, and this may sound kind of dumb asking it like this, but is it tougher to coach at the minor level or the NHL level? Um, I think it's tougher to coach the NHL level. I think the minor level, I, I have to say, it's like, it was really good that I went down there. I think Rick will corroborate what I said. Like, you know, he started off in the East Coast and I was down in the Southern League and then um, uh, the Colonial League. But what happens down there is you're not micromanaged. So you kind of do your own thing and you can learn from your own mistakes and then grow as a coach. Cause now you figure out through trial and error, as opposed to the NHL, if you make a mistake up there, like, you know, a million people watching, you know, and they're on you like rats on cheese. And so, so it doesn't give you a chance to develop as a coach and kind of do the things that you like to do. And maybe something that you had in your back of your mind for 10 years, you wanted to try. Uh, like I had this one forecheck that I, I call it the aggressive and I was thinking about it, thinking about it. And I got a chance to do it down there because nobody's watching. Nobody's watching. And if it failed, it wouldn't have mattered, right? It wouldn't have mattered to me and, and the guys. But I had the opportunity to be able to try to do that. And, you know, we still use it to this day. So um, I, 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 it was the best thing for me, again, to go down 
and, and learn the craft. And, and I think uh, you grow as a coach, but it's definitely harder than nationally globe because uh, you're so scrutinized, especially now it's maybe worse now. And, cer and certainly in, in towns like Toronto and Montreal, <laughs> you're on the coals there. Well, yeah. the reason I was asking that was because uh, like squid and you, you, you're at the minor level and you went to the AHL level, but the reason where I was going to go with that was that the NHL level is an example because of the way agents are and stuff like that with players on long-term contracts. Like you got, you can't be sitting a guy who's making 7 million bucks a year. If the owner's sitting up on the box watching you, or, you know, if you go to yell at a player, you have to go through his agent to call him in. You're going to to tell him he did this wrong. Whereas the minors, they're going to be listening to you maybe a little more because you've been there. You know what it takes mm -hmm. to get there. So they might be a little bit more eager, eager, but you break a lot more hearts at the minor level than maybe at the NHL level, if you know what I mean, because they may not just have it. Yeah. And, and, uh, but you know, the, the idea is, is to get them to play the best that they can, you know, whether they're good enough or yes. not, you know, again, I, the quote, Billy DeLego, the cream comes to the top. So if you're good enough, you'll get there, but you have to play at this level in order to get there. And so I thought that if I could bring out the very best in what that individual could play, then let the chips fall as they may, you know, uh, you know, we're not all, listen, I'm never going to play a major league baseball <laughs> flash news, right? Because I was not good enough to do that. But I was good enough to play hockey. So, I mean, everybody's not good enough to do certain things just is what it is. You know, it's great. Yeah, I, I think, I think as a coach, if you realize what everybody's capable of doing and you put them into a situation where they're comfortable and they know that they, they can succeed doing that certain job that, that you know that they can do i think then they're going to be a lot happier they're going to play a lot better and they're going to they're going to have a lot more respect for you as a coach and uh you know that's why the minors are probably the best like andy said because you can try things down there and you're not under a microscope except for when i was in st john calgary's farm team <laughs> it was hilarious because they'd call down and they'd say we need a uh whatever a, a left winger Who's, who's playing? I, well, Marty St. Louis, he's our best player. He, he can play left, right, doesn't matter. The next day, they'd come in, they're packing someone else's bag. Two years went by, and only once they called up the guy that I said, and that was uh, Chris Clark. And it was his second year uh, in the minors, and there was about three months left in the season. They called him up, and he never played another game in the American League, and I think he's uh, – assistant GM in Columbus now or somewhere. And, uh, but anyway, it's, uh, it's a learning thing. And, and, but I loved it because you got to teach guys and get them to, to work extremely hard because they want to play in the NHL. And I, I thought that was, and they want to please the coach too. They want to please yeah. the coach. Yep. You know, everybody does. So I think I've got it. I think I got one last thing I can tell you guys too. Sure. I think I have an idea like, of how to make it better for NHL coaches. It's pretty simple. It's the Joe Biden rule. Okay. You say what you want about the game and then you walk away from the podium. Don't have to take any questions. Once you do that, <laughs> when you so much pressure off all the coaches, they'll be able to coach better. It would be awesome. Well, isn't that uh, Tortorella's uh, method or his mantra? Well, he, he's learned it from Joe. He's learned it from Joe. <laughs> So just a couple of minutes left here, Andy, a couple of things for you. First off, the, the restaurant business would be, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the hamburger. Yeah. And uh, how did that all begin? Yeah. By the way, that is my brother standing in the background. Oh, oh is it? 
Yeah. At any rate, um, it, it started because uh, there's a fish and chip store down the street from where we lived. My grandfather would always go every Friday to get fish. Uh, and then uh, he, the guy started talking to my grandfather. So he introduced me. And we were originally going to open up a donut store across the street from our original uh, place. And we couldn't because it was a, a gas station originally. So the ground was um, had too much gas in it and, and, and oil and stuff. So it had to be all ex re-expropriated and, and it wouldn't have worked out. So we ended up doing a hamburger store where a record store was and it went out of business. And we did that and it's like 3,000 square feet and, and not even, I'm sorry, uh, 900 square feet. Uh, then we sold it and with that money, we did another one and did another one. So, you know, in two years and it was a tough economic time at that point. Uh, and we ended up having like nine of them and I think there's two left, one at uh, Aaron Gate Station Road and then one on, uh, I'm going to say Young Street at Shepherd, maybe just north of Shepherd. But uh, I don't have anything to do with them anymore, but it was a great experience and uh, it was a lot of fun for the guys. And I, I remember the, the, the one uh, one place I had was uh, right beside A&A Records on Young Street, A&A Records and the Zanzibar uh, strip joint. <laughs> So uh, I was with Jimmy Benny because Jimmy Benny lived right near me. I was going to drive him home that night. I said, look, let's stop by the burger place. We'll grab a couple burgers and we'll go. So sure enough, we get in there and a guy comes out of the strip club and he goes in there. And this is probably about 1130 at night and he's just wasted. And he starts a fight at the thing there. So Jimmy and I, like, and Jimmy and I, in Goodwill tested, we're not fighters. Like we're a lover, <laughs> not fighters. And, and uh, we end up, Jimmy and I break up this big fight and then the police come in and the police just, they're just wailing on these guys. With <laughs> and I said, well, that's why you don't disturb uh, in John Anderson's anymore. The police will come in and take you out. Me and Jimmy Benning will too. So I remember that. That was a lot of fun that night. Well, I'm thankful that you had one. On, I'm thankful that you had one right near my house, Andy, because I used to go yeah. there all the time. On Lawrence was the one on Lawrence. Is that the one? Yep. Why well, I can yep. tell you the one on Lawrence at Warden. That yeah. one was really popular because the guys in the neighborhood. I was telling Squid yesterday. The guys in the neighborhood go there because it was licensed, so they go there every day and sit there and drink every afternoon. Right, but you know what? I I have to tell you, I was against that, but we that was one of the stores we started doing it in, and the other one was on Western Road, uh, and I was only worried about again what happened, you know, in in the one in Young Street, uh, and we didn't serve booze there. But uh, I was afraid of that happening. And, you know, like, you know, you worry about not so much the people around, but certainly the people that work for you. So uh, we just did it. And it, it worked out fine. It wasn't, you know, it was really very minimal problems because they're basically in rural neighborhoods. So it was yeah. okay. Well, listen, John, we want to thank you so much for joining us today. It's been great. Uh, we could talk to you forever. And it's good to have you guys reacquaint and uh, remind us yeah. of old times. Awesome. We were supposed to do it four months ago, but then I uh, went to Bakersfield. So. Yeah, uh, took us a little while, but we got it done. We got it done. It's great. We're real grateful for it. So we want to thank you. And uh, listen, uh, thanks for joining us today and all the best moving forward. And hopefully we'll see you behind the bench pretty soon. Uh, well, I wouldn't count on it, but uh, <laughs> I think this whole body's done. That's for sure. But, uh, listen, I appreciate you having me on. I enjoyed it. You know, always good talking to Rick and, uh, and yourself. And uh, hang in there, boys. Okay, all great. All right, Andy. Thanks, Brian. Okay.